Good morning, church. As was just noted, I'm Dave, one of the elders. And this morning, I'm going to be talking about Jesus' time in Gethsemane. The specific time frame that I'll be speaking about follows on the heels of what we call the Last Supper, what Mike preached about last week, and culminates in his arrest. Today, we look, we'll look at the ways that Jesus suffered and how he was able to stay on course to do his Father's will. My prayer is that God transforms each one of us to respond to betrayal and pain in the way of Jesus. As you might recall, Mark wrote this account of Jesus' life at a, at a, as a proclamation of the gospel to the church in Rome and Italy as they were undergoing pretty severe persecution. They were suffering undeservedly as scapegoats for the atrocities they did not commit. This was a time of extreme persecution with martyrdom of everyday normal Christians just like us. Friends and relatives were outing each other in order to be able to save their own lives. We might say that things were not going quite as they expected from a very good and compassionate God. God wanted these Christians to know that their belief and Jesus as the Messiah was founded in historical fact. He knew they needed to bring these facts to life with a faith that would be able to endure suffering. Mark's readers needed to know that Jesus suffered all that they were suffering and that it ended well. Come with me to the present. We aren't experiencing those same levels of difficulties or suffering. I hope we never do. But our culture brings its own trials and moments of relational suffering as we live out our normal day-to-day -day lives in family, in community, and with friends, with one another. So what do you suppose those early Christians saw in this story that gave them hope? And what can we see for ourselves as well? The story of Jesus' last night in the Garden of Gethsemane is familiar to many of us. But I encourage you to listen with new ears today. Take the risk of putting yourself into the same shoes of the disciples. Peter, James, John, and yes, even Judas. So let's listen together. I'd like to invite Kaylee and Brady up to read the scripture for us. And I'm doing this purposefully so that we can hear scriptures through a younger sister and a younger brother with fresh ears. Then they went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him and became very troubled and distressed. He said to them, my soul is deeply grieved, even to the point of death. Remain here and stay alert. Going a little farther, he threw himself to the ground and prayed that if it was possible, the hour would pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, 
Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake for one hour? Stay awake and pray that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again and prayed the same thing. And when he came again, he found them sleeping. He couldn't. He could not help keep their eyes open, and they did not know what to tell him. He came a third time, and he said to them, "Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough of that. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us go. Look, my betrayer is approaching." Right away, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him came a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent by the chief priests and experts in the law and elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. When Judas arrived, he went up to Jesus and immediately said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they took hold of him and arrested him. One of the bystanders drew his sword and struck the high priest's slave, cutting off his ear. Jesus said to them, Have you come with swords and clubs to arrest me like you would an outlaw? The day, af day after day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, yet you did not arrest me. But this has happened so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. A young man was following him wearing only linen cloth. They tried to arrest him, but he ran off naked leaving his linen clothing behind. This is the word of the Lord. Let's take a brief moment of silence. Father, in this moment of silence, would you help us to hear and see what you have for us to hear? Father, we thank you that you left us with your word, that we'd not, we would not have to grope about in darkness, not know who you are. You have told us who you are. So we thank you for that. I pray that you would open our eyes to see anew, our hearts, Lord God, to respond in a new and vibrant way to your word. So we thank you. We lift up this time to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm sure this will be of no surprise to you for those of you who've been here a number of weeks. But I actually found four groupings. <laughs> yes. <laughs> four. Yes. I am calling these the four woes. Together, I want us to explore what these four woes are and the heart conditions that incubated these woeful behaviors and then aimed them against Jesus. Mark and the Spirit through him wanted his readers to see that Jesus suffered the same woes that they were suffering. He wanted them to know that their God not only understood their affliction, but had also experienced them, yet with hope. What did Mark want them to learn that could transform them? To give them a way of living, a greater view of life, where they could see life in a way that raised their eyesight above their own immediate distresses. Let's discover what more the Lord through Mark wants us to know. Let's start with the woes that are exposed in the light of Gethsemane. 
The scenes of Gethsemane show us several surface actions, visible behaviors that can be seen and felt. This section sheds light on four such behaviors. I call the first one stupor because nine times Jesus was telling uh, through the Gospel of Mark to stay alert or to be watchful. We are a dull people. Peter, John, and James display this character trait when they could not keep watch during Jesus' prayers even after he asked them and implored them telling how distressed he was in his soul. Even after the second time Jesus returned, he found them asleep and they didn't know what to say. The second one is sabotage. This is a deliberate attempt to destroy, undermine, or subvert someone's life, their goals, or direction. In this case, Jesus's. It started with the Pharisees and Herodians, two politically, uh, political enemies. But it came to fruition with Judas, the betrayer, coming with the weapon-betraying horde to arrest him. All this, even with a kiss. Scattering, our capacity to abandon a person or group or some institution when things aren't going quite our way. And they scattered from Jesus. They abandoned him during his ministry in Gethsemane, even his closest friends. I call the last one small-mindedness. Had a little tougher time thinking through this one. But it really is an inability or an unwillingness to look beyond our own self-interests, our own sympathies, our own outlooks. The people who surrounded Jesus had their minds made up about what they were to expect from him. They were unable to comprehend the words of Jesus that ran counter to what they had embedded in their own minds. I wonder how often I do that. How often you But our behaviors don't just spring up on their own. They're incubated in heart conditions that are nurtured below the surface. Mark 7, 21 to 23 has a good long description of this. These. It says, from within, out of the human heart, come evil ideas, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, evil, deceit, debauchery, envy, slander, pride, and folly. All these evils come from within and defile a person. Here are just a few of the heart conditions that I believe are exposed in this section. Contempt. Contempt is the first heart condition. It's a posture of the heart, a judgment that we make that something is not quite so valuable to the point that we actually have disdain for it or that person. Judas had clearly fostered contempt for Jesus and his ministry. The other one is complacency. That's where we get so comfortable with someone or something that we become self-satisfied with the relationship. Peter, John, and James showed this when they failed, even after Jesus implored them to remain alert and watchful while he prayed. I also see fear and unbelief in this section. They feared for their lives, and when they were faced with imminent harm, 
They didn't believe Jesus to do what he said he was going to do, like being raised from the dead. So this side of heaven, experiencing these woes, among others, are part of life. I know that I have experienced several of these throughout my life, both as the recipient and, sadly, as the perpetrator. I allow myself to stay in a stupor by distracting myself so I can avoid what's going on in the lives of friends, family, and neighbors because of fear. I often sabotage my relationship with my wife through petty, non-loving behaviors when I'm upset and contempt rises up in my heart. I almost scattered from this church a couple of years back because, of my, expecta because my expectations were not being met. And I became complacent about my relationship with God and with those he was connecting me with. I actually like being small-minded. I do this so I can make my own actions, comments, and hurts about me. Make them all about me. And I refuse to rest in who God is and his redemptive plan for each one of us. Please know that each one of us is shackled by sin in one way or another. So how do you see yourself in a disciple's shoes? In so many of these situations, I, like you, do not respond with love that covers a multitude of sins. For that sort of love, thank God we can turn to Jesus. Jesus' response is so different. He felt the sting of every single one of those sinful nuances targeted against him. Mark helps us to see how Jesus suffered all of these in this scene, yet his response was so other-oriented, so other-focused, so loving, gracious, and merciful. Jesus even called Judas friend when he was coming to betray him with a kiss. Friend, I don't do that. He saw all this. What's more, he knew that he would be moving forward to the unspeakable suffering, the physical, emotional, and spiritual suffering to bear the consequences of all our sins. Did he want otherwise? I think his prayer certainly seems to bear this out. Yet, yet, he remained committed to the Father's will. In his response to all these woes, it is clearly described in Hebrews 2, 14 18. I'd like to read that. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise shared in their humanity, so that through death he could destroy the one who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and set free those who were held in slavery all their lives by their fear of death. For surely his concern is not for angels, but he is concerned for Abraham's descendants. That's you and me. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he could become merciful and a faithful high priest in things relating to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. 
For since he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. You see, Jesus did not have the same short-sighted, small-minded view of life that you and I have. Jesus had incorporated into his mind and heart the largest story of the Trinity's redemptive plan that he, the Father, and the Spirit designed before he ever stepped foot on this earth as a human being. We are living in that redemptive plan right now. The Roman Christians grasped this as they went forward to the Colosseum to be martyred. We can grasp this when we endure workplace betrayal, relational offenses by our brothers and sisters in Christ, by harsh words from family members or friends. Jesus had the larger story of God's redemptive plan thoroughly embedded in his heart and mind. He was a student of the scripture. He spent time in prayer. His prayer and time in scripture were bathed in worship. And his worship was buttressed by his time in prayer and the scripture. The father was and still is at the center of Jesus' life. He was and still is completely other-oriented. Thank God for that. That is why and how he willingly accepted the Father's will in spite of the behaviors and the heart conditions that were assailing him. But understand this. Even if we do all the outward things that Jesus did, we cannot deliver ourselves from the condition of our own hearts. We cannot garner the type of resolve or willpower through our own efforts. Jesus was helping Peter and his companions understand this when he said the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You see, in the past, I've always looked at this and thought, I just need to grip my teeth more. I need to bear up a little bit harder. I need to strengthen my flesh. Then my spirit will come alive and help me. I don't believe that anymore. I want to help you to not believe that either. My flesh is too weak to do anything about the heart condition that gives my life, that gives my life to these behaviors. The spirit is willing but needs to be given greater reign in my life. We don't strengthen our flesh. We strengthen the life of God's spirit in the center of our beings. Our own spirit is strengthened by God's spirit. He changes our hearts. The behaviors follow. So how do we do this? We find this foundational ingredient to Jesus' ability to live in the larger story and endure suffering in the Gospel of John, where John describes details that Mark doesn't. John shows us that Jesus led a life filled with worship and rightly informed prayer in the moments before Gethsemane and actually his entire life. John 4 is a beautiful illustration as he gazed at the Father, remembered what the Father said to him, and prayed back those words to affirm what he knew about the Father and the Father's will. You see, Jesus was energized by the power of the Spirit, 
even as we can be as believers. We are called and given capacity as believers to strengthen our spirit the same way that Jesus did. He right, by rightly aligning our souls and enhuning our hearts to the fathers through worship. You might be asking, what is worship? The late Vernon McGee describes worship as a love affair. Then true worship is a love affair with, with God. Jesus worshiped the Father truly, purely, and completely because he was wholly in love with the Father. But our love, certainly mine, is divided. How does God become preeminent in our heart and mind? How does he? The Bible gives us an insight in the story where Jesus tells a woman that God seeks those who worship him in spirit and in truth. We worship in spirit. With our whole being, heart, mind, soul, and strength. We're in it with all we are and all we have. We learn to, to pay him the highest homage, adoration, and respect, no matter what our circumstances are. This is why it is so important to attend corporate worship and to find time in our personal lives throughout the week to worship. Well, we worship in truth. Not our own made-up stories, but in accordance with the revealed word of God, what he tells us who he is. This is why it is so important to get to know the scriptures, to get to know him better through the scriptures. I wonder if a significant key to staying alert, enduring, being other-oriented, has more to do with my being alive in active, ongoing worship than it has to do with me just being aware of my own surroundings, my own circumstances. But here's my gotcha. Probably yours too. I'm largely blinded to what I truly worship. So God in his mercy uses suffering to expose what I'm really worshiping, my true loves, my true allegiances. If you and I want to be transformed in our hearts, in our minds, and not just attempt to whitewash our behavior, we must learn to submit to his discipline and worship in spirit and truth as we learn to live a light, live life in the light of the cross. I came across this. Tim Keller says that worship consumes death. It consumes sin. Excuse me. I need that. So how do we begin to worship well? How do I begin to worship well? How do I keep it up? Here's a simple structure to remember. Number one, remember and meditate on God's bigger story so that we can, two, submit to it. When we truly submit, we are free to, three, rest in his work as an act of worship. We cultivate this by, number four, practicing worship in season and out. The Navy SEALs are known for saying, we do not rise to the occasion. We actually sink to the lowest level of our training, our practice. So I practice, and I hope you will join me in that. 
I practice worshiping. Perhaps use the weekly liturgy that Stephen posts on our website. Perhaps recite the Psalms. Whatever it is, practice. Let's practice when we feel contempt rising up. Let's practice when we notice we're becoming complacent. Let's practice when we see the small story in our hearts growing larger than the large story of God's redemptive plan. Let us worship when we're wronged and when we wrong. Let us worship him when we fail and when we succeed. He is not only our example, he is more. He is also our path. He is our strength when our flesh and spirit are weak. He is our all in all. Worship creates the larger story in my heart and mind. Worship consumes my sin. Let us worship the one who is our endurance, our redemption, the changer of our hearts.